Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's episode is called Keep Sweet, a documentary review with Radio Free Mormon. Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I've got a special guest again. I, I just can't get rid of this guy. He just keeps coming back and wants to talk about more things. I'm like a bad penny. I keep turning up. <laughs> I'll take you. Anytime that you want to have a discussion, you let me know and I'll bring you on. Actually, I did. I did let you know I wanted to have this discussion and you were kind enough to host me. I invited myself on your show again. <laughs> As I said, you're welcome on anytime. You reached out to me. You said that you wanted to discuss Keep Sweet. And I said, that sounds like a blast. And here we are. So today, that's the subject of discussion. The documentary that's on Netflix called Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey covers Warren Jeffs and the FLDS Church. And it is a very powerful documentary. There were multiple points, I think two episodes specifically, that I got very emotional and teary-eyed in a couple of spots. I had a similar experience. I watched it last week. By the way, today's date that we're recording, this is July 1st, happy July of 2022. I had watched it last week and I had a very powerful emotional experience, completely unexpected, by the way. At the end, of the final, the fourth and final episode. And I had wanted to talk about that, but then I thought that's not much of a podcast, my emotional experience at the end of this. And so I reached out to you. I thought maybe there's more that can be said about this documentary. So you said, yes, we'll do it today. So I went back and I rewatched everything, took notes. I've got 16 pages of notes from the four episodes. So before we jump into things, I wanted to do a quick shout out, a quick announcement. Those that follow the Mormon Discussions brand may be aware that um, Britt Hartley, the host of uh, Almost Awakened, the co-host of Almost Awakened with Bill Real, has recently gone through some a very traumatic personal experience with one of her, her children. There's um, some expensive hospital bills coming up with a very, very long recovery time for this child. In the show notes, I'm going to throw a link down to a fundraiser on DonorBox for Brittany and her family. So if you are financially able, please go follow that link and, and donate to them what you can. And at the least, you know, maybe if you're not financially able, reach out, express your love and kindness towards Brit through this hard time that she and her family are going through. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I want to get a hold of that link. I've seen it elsewhere on the internet and I'll be making a donation as well. Like I said, it'll be in the show notes. So um, click the description. I'll have a, a link to the, the donor box for that. The way it's been set up is it, it's all going to be transparent. So you'll you'll see exactly what all, all of the funds are going, going to. Okay, really good. I'm a big fan of transparency. Yeah, me too. <laughs> 
you expressed interest in coming in and chatting about this. I hadn't seen it, but it was on my list of shows to watch. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to throw out a spoiler warning uh, for those that haven't seen it yet. Warren Jeffs does get arrested in the end. So we're going to, we're going to cover that a little bit. Yes. And he's still behind bars. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And he's still leading his church from behind bars. That was something that I didn't know um, that he's still influencing and running the FLDS church from behind bars. I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah. And the trial was back in September of 2007, where he got convicted of two counts of being an accessory to statutory rape. And then they piled the sentences on top of him to over 100 years. So that's been quite a while. It's been about 14 years now. And just recently, I saw a revelation that he had released from prison earlier this year in 2022. So yes, he continues to be the the prophet from behind bars. The question I had, and they didn't really address this in the show, was he, as the prophet of the LDS church, was managing and approving all of the plural marriages. But in his absence, yes. how was that approval process? How does that approval process work anymore? There were a lot of things that this show did not answer. Uh, they were telling a lot of great stories and they had a whole lot on their plate. I was impressed they kept it to four episodes and kept everything packed in there. But there were a few things that I thought were interesting. And I imagine that the producer of this show thought it was very interesting too, but they must have made the hard decision to leave some interesting stuff on the cutting room floor. They may have had a longer cut, but when they brought it to Netflix, Netflix may have told them, hey, we only want four episodes. We want it to just focus on you know, X, Y, and Z storylines. So there, there's a lot more that goes into it. It was most likely condensed down to four episodes because of Netflix. Right. Directed by Rachel Dresden and Grace McNally. The show opens up with a Ephesians 5.22 and then... It describes the FLDS church as a far offshoot of Mormonism. And that just kind of struck me as odd, like an odd way to phrase it. Because in my mind, it's not that far off of the original brand of Mormonism that was practiced in the 1830s and 40s, or late 1830s and the 1840s. So the question it brought to me is like, is Warren Jeff's version of the FLDS church closer to Joseph Smith's than, than the current prophet, Russell M. Nelson's version of Mormonism? Answer, yes. Yeah, which two would be the most similar? It's so easy to look at the just the basic doctrines and the tenets of them to say that the FLDS church is a closer version to the original Mormonism. Oh, absolutely. And that's their big selling point. And as we'll find out in episode one, there's an individual who was a member of the regular LDS church who converts and joins the FLDS because he wants to live the law of God more closely and more correctly. And so I thought it was I thought it was an interesting way to start this off by almost misleading the audience to saying that it's different than the original Mormonism, but it really isn't. No, it isn't. And there's a number of places throughout these four episodes where I kept seeing these connections with LDS history. And one of them starts off with this picture of Warren kissing that little girl who he's holding up in his arms. Obviously, this is uh, him carrying her, I guess, across the threshold on their honeymoon. They've just been married. He's kissing her. 
I think they, they blur out her face, but I've seen the pictures without the face blurred out. This is a very young girl. She's maybe 14. And when I see that, I have a visceral reaction of revulsion to that picture. And part of that, well, obviously it's because it's this guy who's, I don't know, is he 40? Who's marrying this 14-year-old girl and kissing her? And then I think, well, wait a second. We've got Joseph Smith marrying Helen Mark Kimball, among others, but Helen Mark Kimball is the one famous for being a few months shy of her 15th birthday when she marries Joseph Smith, when he marries her. Let me let me put the order in the correct syntax, okay? When Joseph Smith <laughs> marries her. And there's all this argument among apologists about whether he had sex with her. Did he have sex with her? Well, let's just say he just kissed her, okay? For purposes of this argument, let's just say he gave her a, a nice smack right on the lips. That picture, if they had taken a picture of that back then, would look exactly like this revulsive picture of Warren Jeffs kissing this little 14-year-old girl bride. And that was, that was some of the strength of the way this storytelling was done in this documentary is they showed so much like actual footage on the ranch and, you know, uh, in the towns that this, that the FLDS church has practiced. And they also showed a number of pictures of Rulon, Warren's father with his brides. Now it didn't seem like he was marrying child brides. It's at least from, from what they presented, his were all 18 and older, but there was a, there was a photo that really struck me from Rulon as well. He's in his late eighties. He's getting married and it's this picture of him and his new bride and the bride has braces on. So she's, she's a kid. She's got braces on. And then he in this wedding photo has a ventilator on. So here, here he is the end last stages of his life needs a ventilator in order to survive. And here she is so young that her teeth, her teeth still need straightened out. It's just, it was really a jarring juxtaposition of, of these people getting married from such disparate stages of their lives. Yes. And I think that the two people that uh, we learn about or see and hear from in the show who were brides of Rulon were married when they were 18 or 19. But there is a comment later on from one of them that there was still underage marriage going on with Rulon. But when Warren took over, it was like it went on steroids. Yeah, I, I remember that. So they had said something to that effect where it was practiced before, but it was really uncommon. But when Rulon took over, it really took off. When, when Warren? Warren, yeah. When Warren took over, it really took off. Yeah, thanks. It was interesting. So some of, the, some of the people that they talked to, even those that had since left, they described Rulon and him leading the church almost as if it were like the good times and like the good old days of the FLDS church, which I thought was really interesting. And, and perhaps it's the same as when I look back at my time in the Mormon church. You know, when I think of President Hinckley or even Monson, like I have a fondness for these people, even though I no longer believe the things that I did when I, when I was practicing. Right. And so this uh, person who was, I think it's Rebecca who's talking about it at this point, uh, the halcyon days of her youth back when Rulon was running the, um, the show and talking about, well, they had fun, you know, they supported each other. Things were, 
were happy. And she describes a very happy life. They were able to wear the color red. Absolutely. And denim. I mean, they were going, they were going crazy there in the FLDS church. But, you know, it is the same person, Rebecca, who talks about her revulsion at being given to Rulon as an 18 or 19 year old bride by her father. And so let me just go ahead and say that her father is this guy who's the convert. Now, this convert, his last name is Wall, W-A-L-L. He's a regular member of the church, I think, the LDS church. He converts over to being FLDS. This guy is no dummy. He is extre extremely intelligent. He invents things. And I'm, I'm guessing he patents them. He, he was an engineer, I, I'm pretty sure. Yes, and he had this massively successful company, if not more than one. And he gives all these things over to the church. This is after Warren becomes uh, the leader. But I believe, and that's part of the problem with the chronology here, is that they have a number of stories they want to tell. And by the very nature of the thing, the stories are going to overlap in different places. So the chronology wasn't that easy to follow, but I understand that it had to be sacrificed in order to present the stories as effectively as they did. Yeah, you have to have clean like stopping points in your interviews, and that's not always easy to do. And so there's there's lots of things that the directors will be juggling with with that sort of thing. Right. And the main point I wanted to make is. We shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that somebody has to be an idiot or insane to join the FLDS church any more than we should think that somebody has to be an idiot or insane to join the LDS church because very intelligent people can be found in both groups. So speaking of intelligent people and smart, educated people, one of the first things, and this is from part one, when Warren is first getting in these positions of leadership, his dad puts him as the principal of this school for the FLDS church. Yes, the Alta Academy in Salt Lake yep. City. Yeah, so the first thing he does is he starts kicking out all of the outside books and cutting out whole sections of the science books and limiting the information that his people have access to. And I, I just wish that I could see what things were cut out because that's always fascinating to me to see what these leaders found threatening to their authority or threatening to their worldview. Um, I think that's really telling for the type of people they are and the type of things that they want to focus on. Yeah, they mentioned specifically science books. So I'm guessing that what was cut out probably had to do with evolution, evolution, yeah. age of the earth, those kinds of things that might have conflicted with their doctrine. But they said they were throwing out just regular books, too. So it wasn't just the science books. Oh, they, okay. They yeah. talked about um, the one gal talked about go, just going to the library to get regular books and those regular books weren't there anymore. Nancy Drew. Yes. yes. Encyclopedia Brown. Mm -hmm. Yes. That was Rebecca. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they went through this thing of cutting out things from the textbooks and then getting rid of these other books. And this happens over time, right? After Warren becomes the, the head of the church. And so once again, there's this issue with the chronology, which I'm not clear on, but that's okay. Yeah. This reminds me of Joseph Fielding Smith, who edits letter book one with a pen knife. <laughs> cutting out anything that would be harmful to faith. Right. Exactly. So they're the ones who know what's best for people, and they are therefore the ones who are best in a position to regulate what it is that their followers can read. I'm going to jump back to something that we were talking about just a little bit ago, and this is telling for the way this culture 
viewed women. In the process of this uh, gentleman, Wall, that gave his daughter to Rulon, the children, the female children of any family were viewed as a form of currency. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. I think the specific line that they said was, I'll give you some of my daughters if you give me some of yours. And what happened was this wall man gave Rulon one of his daughters. And in return, he was given a third wife. And the one thing they don't actually say in the movie is in return, but it's pretty obvious that that's what happened. I'll give you my daughter. By the way, this is Rebecca. She reminds me of Liesl from The Sound of Music. So that's how I keep her in mind. And it is wonderful that apparently they're spending half their time photographing and taking video of activities when they're they're kids. So we get to see multiple pictures and even video of these individuals who are actually addressing the camera as adults out of the FLDS back when they were in the FLDS. There was a a large wall in Rulon's home where he just had like a a row of photographs of his wives and they would pan to the one that they were just about to chat with. And so you would see what they looked like when they were married to Rulon and then it would be present day of that woman telling her story and her experience being married to Rulon. Right. And so with this, uh, the father of Liesl, who I guess would have been Captain Von Trapp. No, seriously, it's... (laughs) It's Rulon. Uh, There's this whole idea that her dad, Mr. Wall, the convert, the guy who's the engineer, very smart. He got a second wife not long after he got there. Apparently, his first wife, I think, was Myrna. His second wife was Sharon, much younger. And he needs to get a third wife because they have a doctrine that you have to have three wives in order to go to the top or third level of the celestial kingdom. There seems to be a a correlation there. Three wives, three degrees within the kingdom, and you have to have three wives. And he's hanging out. He can't get a third wife to save his soul. (laughs) He doesn't get to go out and ask somebody because that's not in the rule book. He has to have Rulon. Yeah, you have to have the prophet give you the green light for any sort of extra marriage. Yes, and I am presuming, though it wasn't said in the show, But based on what I know about Mormonism and Joseph Smith's day is that there's only one person on the earth who has this power at any given time to conduct these eternal marriages. And those would all have been done, I'm guessing, by Rulon or certainly somebody at his direction. Now, I don't know if this was something that was changed. Apparently, during Warren Jeff's tenure, he was approving even the first marriages for some of the young men. This is in part two. Um, after Rulon has passed away, Warren Jeffs is now running things. The first two women that they focus on in that episode were the two that were married at 14 or 15. And these two were not given to Warren or any of the older leaders. Both of these were married to um, younger men. Younger, I think one of them was 30 and the other one was mid-20s. But these were 14-year-olds getting married to older men. These first marriages of these guys were assigned by Warren. So I I think at some point there must have been a shift in how it was practiced where even even first marriages were being uh, handed out by the prophet. Right. And when your exaltation depends upon the number of wives you have, the person who hands out the wives is the one with all the power. And that's a paraphrase of what the reporter 
this is was really sickening, but they were looking at these young girls almost as a form of of currency. Well, this is the problem. This is the problem with this theology. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that it inevitably leads to this kind of thing because it can't not. When you have a doctrine that dehumanizes women in such a way that that this this whole practice of polygamy works functionally within the faith, it inherently leads to this sort of behavior. Right. It's one of those things where it does also negatively affect men. So it's not just, I mean, yes, the impacts are far greater on women, but they discussed in part two that there were too many men in the community and not enough women for all of the men to have multiple wives. No, because all the old guys are taking them all. And so Warren is going around kicking people out of the FLDS church, kicking them out into the street and and just getting rid of them however they can to create a surplus of women so that the faithful can have those three wives. And this reminded me of, of some of the stories from early church history where, you know, Joseph Smith would send the husbands out on missions or, you know, arrange fake marriages to one person so that he could have his secret marriage to that, to that woman who was fake married to this other guy. There's, there's a lot of similarities to, to this practice of getting rid of the men in order to create this surplus of women for the practice of polygamy. Right. And that's what inevitably happens. It's actually the opposite of the old apologetic about why the LDS practice polygamy, the old apologetic being, well, there were so much persecution and the guys were getting killed off so much that there was a surplus of women. No, there wasn't a surplus of women. The opposite is true. Once you follow this along the path long enough and you are taking a bunch of women off the market, marrying them to one man, what you end up with is a surplus of men. And they have to be gotten rid of in some way because this is not a good thing if you're the leader of an FLDS type group, which is you're taking all these women and marrying them. So you have all of these young guys out there who cannot get associated with a woman because they are not available, but they're still out there with their hormones raging. And what's going to happen with that? Well, nothing good can happen from that. So they have to be pushed out of the compound and they become the lost boys. On on this specific subject, in, in part two, when they're covering these two young girls that get married at a, at a very young age. You, you have Ruby Jessup and she's talking about having a crush on this guy and they're having these late night phone conversations and they're... That's Joe, Joe Robach. Let me double check. I'm, I've got the IMDP page up, but there's no pictures of these women, so... <laughs> it's okay, I took notes. <laughs> ouch, ouch, you're hurting me. Zing. I took notes, I just, I just used shorthand. So, so you have this Joe Robach and she is... She's retelling her story of, you know, having that puppy love interaction with this, this gentleman. This boy. Let's make that clear because they're both age appropriate for each other. Yes, you're right. Yes, they are. They are both age appropriate. And they're, they're having their puppy love, you know, late night phone calls and they're, they're into each other. When she gets called by Warren to marry this other guy, it creates this problem that we're describing here, where you have these age-appropriate people falling in love, wanting to be together, you know, whether or not they would have been together, you know, who knows, because they were children. 
creates this problem where now you have given this young girl to an older guy and you have this this young age appropriate guy that would have paired nicely with Joe. Now he's suddenly out of out of luck. And not only that, down the road when she runs away, they send him to go and reclaim her and then he gets excommunicated. So he's promised to marry her if he brings her back. But instead of getting any sort of marriage to this girl, he gets kicked out of the church. And so it's just this this personal story of of how it was actually being run to harm both the women and the men in the faith. Yeah, that was a very painful story about how he got totally um, betrayed and he was used by Warren Jeff to betray Ruby by bringing her back because he was the only one who could bring her back under the false promise that they could get married then. Once he got her back to the compound, he gets her back to the compound and it's hasta la vista, Joe. You're out of here. Thanks, sucker. (laughs) During the retelling of this story, you have Joe. She's kind of walking around her house and she's really emotional. There was a scene where she she stops interviewing and she just says, I need to stop for a minute because I have to go and cry. It's when she says she was 14 when she got married. Yeah, this is when she's talking about being 14 and married. So she goes out, she has a smoke and she's crying and the directors, they must've been filming this whole process because they got some excellent footage of her outside in the yard. During this retelling of the story, the, her getting married as a child, her running away and then bring, being brought back into the fold, they break away from the actual documentary to show this clip of her while she's still outside. She's having her smoke break. There's a goat stuck in the fence on her property and she goes up to this goat and she you know she's being kind to it and, and loving it's it's her animal that she cares for she goes and she gets it untangled and then she releases it back and i i love that the directors kept that footage because it was so analogous of this whole story of her interaction with the flds church so here she was she was trying to escape she's getting caught in the fence if you will And then you have Warren coming back and rescuing her and then freeing her from her mistakes, if you will. But this freedom that she was given back to was an enclosed pen. She just went back to the prison of this pen that she was in from her from her childhood. I loved that they broke away from the storytelling from the from the documentary to show this visual storytelling that was so perfectly analogous to the story that they were telling. Good point. And I like the way that you saw that and the way you explain it. Yeah, she ends up leaving with um, the help of her brother. And this is one of the problems about having all these lost boys out there is they're not just potential suitors to the women. They are also brothers to the women, Right. And so you've got very close family bonds, brothers and sisters. You've got brothers on the outside, sisters on the inside. And in two of the instances with these people, one with Ruby, I believe, and one with Rebecca, they end up calling their brothers who are on the outside to arrange their escape and have a place to go. The way they describe it, and even those that, that left, and then this is in, in part four in the last episode, and they're talking about their families that they can't talk to anymore, and that sort of a thing. It seems akin to the Jehovah's Witness faith, where there is clear doctrine of shunning those that have left. And so there was, um, they were actively being discouraged from 
engaging with and talking to any family member that has left the faith. Right. And you can see why they would do that. But still, uh, there are people who get away, but the seems like the vast majority are there. Mm-hmm. The people who leave are the exception, not the rule. So back to Rulon. Yeah, he's got this line of wives, however many wives he had. It was an awfully big line who have to line up and go in and see him every night to say goodnight to him and give him a goodnight kiss. Yeah. And then uh, he will tell which one of them he wants to pass the night with, that they're the ones who are going to stay with him. And Rebecca, the one who I believe was talking about how nice it was to be a kid. She talks about this and how horrible this was, that she's married to this guy who's in his 80s. He gives uh, her dad, I think it was, the old three squeeze handshake, which means I want your daughter or either that or he gives it to her. But there's a secret handshake, a super secret handshake in this case. Sacred, not secret. Right. Of the three squeezes. And I don't know if that has to do with, you know, the third degree of the celestial kingdom either. Who knows? But but what she says is uh, she would talk to him and try and get him to fall asleep. So that she wouldn't have to pass another night. So No, so that she could pass another night without him touching me. She, she described herself rubbing his feet and like calming him down to avoid the whole experience. And she, she described it when she was talking about this the first time that she was with him. She, she said that this was, this was everything she was told was bad. Why would the prophet be doing this to her? There was this um, emotional abuse along with this physical abuse where they had been told these things were wrong and then suddenly they're right with a different person. It's a really unhealthy way to approach sexuality, even in this unhealthy system around sexuality. Right. And that particular aspect of it does find instances in Mormonism as well. Focusing on how bad sex is. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Okay. Now you get married. Now it's okay and encouraged and commanded. This is a theme throughout. And this was, a, I, I don't know that, that Warren coined this phrase, but he was definitely the one that pushed it, the keep sweet, pray and obey. And the whole concept was that they wanted to encourage the women in the community to be meek and submissive you know, act as, as though they're some sort of cattle or, you know, currency for these people. And so they, this keep sweet line was, was said over and over again. It's imprinted on the buildings. This, this attitude that they were trying to engender in these women was very unhealthy. Yeah. It was like their uh, mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Mission statements. I have my own thoughts about mission statements, but this is definitely <laughs> their mission statement. And then Rebecca says about trying to get him to go to sleep uh, so that she wouldn't have to submit to him. She says um, it was very poignant when she says it worked for a while until it didn't. It's really sad. So this the, this was one of the parts where where it kind of hit home just how unhealthy these systems were for me. This woman, this Rebecca, as she's she's giving this interview, she's years removed from this whole experience but you can still see even though she's not crying like you can see on her face just how hard this experience was and she was collected she she was well put together during the interview but it was apparent that this was this was a really hard experience 
Yeah, Rebecca was extremely articulate. She said a number of things in addition to that. It worked for a while until it didn't. And what I wrote down was her description of Warren Jeffs, the son of Rulon. She said about Warren, he was the awkward son of a man with power. They didn't go into this a ton, but I was curious to why Warren was selected over the countless other sons that Rulon had. One of Warren's brothers was interviewed um, throughout uh, the documentary, but they never really covered why Warren. Right. All they said about it was that Warren's mother, so obviously one of Rulon's many wives, Warren's mother had was very aggressive. She's like a stage mom, pushing Warren, getting him close to Rulon, making sure he's in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, showing him off, and that she was very instrumental in Warren becoming the next leader after Rulon died, which he wasn't supposed to do, by the way, remember? Yeah, they had a prophecy about this. Rulon was supposed to be their last prophet to usher in the millennium. Yes. And then, unfortunately, he died. Yeah, as happens with many of the end times prophecies. The dates come up and then they continue on. Right. So this is back around. It's actually 2002. I believe it is. He has his stroke. Rulon has a stroke in 1998. He passes away in 2002. This coincides with the Olympics coming to Salt Lake City. Warren Jeffs is now the he is the um, the heir apparent and now he's the leader. And so he takes all of the all of the um, RFLDS people who have been in different places, a lot up in Salt Lake City. But of course, the main place being down in Short Creek. But he moves everybody down to Short Creek because we're going there now because the world's going to be destroyed because God hates. Yes, God hates the Olympics. If there's one thing that's going to piss God <laughs> off, it's the Olympics. So Olympics are coming to Salt Lake City. I'm sure he saw it as an infusion of Gentile badness. And so now that's the trigger. Jesus is going to come again. We have to get down to Short Creek so we'll be prepared. And so then they wait and they wait and they wait. And guess what? Jesus doesn't show up. Right. In the time after Rulon has a stroke to 2002, Warren sidles up to Rulon and, and basically starts running the church from that point forward. He's controlling everyone that Rulon is able to see. He's controlling every aspect of the meetings and, and only a select few people even can have meetings and discussions with Rulon. Effectively, he is running the church from the moment that Rulon has a stroke. Right. Whether or not he believed in the Millennium Prophecy or or in the faith, um, he, he took over and he was running things from that point forward. But again, I, I think they did have this existential crisis of what do we do now that this end times prophecy hasn't been fulfilled. And this is when Warren doubles down. He starts teaching that they need to be even more obedient and even more faithful. And they start removing things from the culture. They start taking away the denim. The women are only allowed to wear pastel colors. And not only that, there's, they're required, the women are required to braid their hair elegantly and intricately daily. Like, they cannot go out in public without these elegant braids in their hair. It's this doubling down of their faith that happens so many times when a prophecy doesn't go through. And this is something you'll see in, in so many different faiths where you would assume or one would assume that a failed prophecy would, would 
break the faith or lead to non-belief, but it doesn't. So many times people double down instead of doubting what they believe. Right. There is a minority of people in situations like this who end up leaving. They were the ones who were on the outskirts in the first place and they'll leave. But the majority who stay retrench and they double down, as you say, and they become more devoted, more faithful, more observant. And what Warren had said was, well, Jesus didn't come again, but this is a gift. God has given us a gift by not coming as quickly as he told me he was going to originally. But um, this is a gift so that we have more time to repent. And now there's no more play. Now he says play is like a sin word. And the motto became the new mission statement. There's another mission statement, which is you have to work hard for the privilege of working harder. I saw some interesting connections between the way um, Warren was doubling down and a lot of the emphasis that Signe Rigdon put into the early church. He was focused on hardcore belief and having as little fun as possible. You have the stories of, of Joseph Smith um, encouraging the, the men in one of the armies uh, around their militias around the time of the Hans Mill massacre, encouraging them to wrestle and have fun on a Sunday. And then you have Sidney Rigdon coming in and, and shutting everything down and getting upset. And then you have this, you know, this uh, battle of wits between Sidney and Joseph Smith. Um, but throughout uh, Sidney's whole time, in the church, he gives me the same sort of vibe as Warren did here, as far as being a stickler for extreme obedience at the expense of your own pleasure. Yeah, I agree. So we've got it up through Warren taking over, but they do have two existential crises. Crises, no, crises. Uh, Rulon dies. He's not supposed to die without Jesus coming back. And they also talk about Warren starting to talk as if he were. Rulon. And there's almost this idea of a transfiguration of Brigham Young into Joseph Smith idea going on, that he is going to now substitute himself in for his dad, Rulon, by speaking as if he were Rulon, and maybe in some way avoiding this failed prophecy about Rulon dying before the second coming. Well, he's going to live through Warren. They didn't talk about it too much, but they did mention it in association with the fact that Warren starts marrying all of his dad's wives. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the first things that he did right when he took over. He starts taking on many of his dad's wives. Right. And that makes a certain degree of sense. If you're Rulon, of course, you're just remarrying the same women that you were already married to before you died. If Warren is the Rulon secondarius. <laughs> you know what I mean? But on the other hand, his brother who's being talked to, who's no longer a member, Obviously, anybody who's talking on the camera to the interviewer is no longer a member of the uh, FLDS. But he's looking at it from a different point of view and saying he's marrying his mothers. So he's seeing it as a very Oedipal kind of thing. Yeah, he didn't like that at all. And he, he did say in the time when, when his father, Rulon, was still alive, that Warren wouldn't let him go and speak to his father. There was, there was um, a lot of control over who could actually go and talk to Rulon in his last years of his life. Which is also very similar to what happens in the LDS church when the president becomes incapacitated due to old age infirmity or a stroke. And of course, we think back to Ezra Taft Benson as the most obvious example of that. There was also David O. McKay who lived old as God. 
<laughs> he was not really functioning in the last number of years of his presidency. And what we find out from reading the history, such as oh, the, uh, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism by Gregory Prince, we find out that the forceful personalities in the leadership of the Quorum of the Twelve use that opportunity in order to try and promote their own agendas. Power, excuse me, nature abhors a vacuum. And this is a vacuum of power. You have the same thing happening when President Monson is having, is, you know, suffering from dementia and you have a push towards the November 15th exclusion policy while he has dementia and then, you know, (laughs) being retracted a few years later. Emphases that were not on the plate when he was sane or completely mentally um, um, capable of running the church are suddenly important when he has dementia. Right. And from the other side of the equation, it doesn't just happen in conservative areas. It also happens in liberal areas. There was Harold, not Hubie Brown, who in 1969, of course, David O. McKay passes away, I think, in January of 1970. So he's still president of the church, but obviously on his last legs in 1969. And Hubie Brown tries to take that opportunity to get past, if I can use that expression, to get past the lifting of the priesthood and temple ban on black people. And he almost gets there, except I think that Harold B. Lee gets back in town. Yeah, he comes back to town and says, what the what? You're doing what? No, we're not doing that. Yeah, to put another decade on on the ban. It feels like, and, and this was from a conversation that you just had the other day with Charlie Harrell. Yes, he wrote, this is my doctrine. Yeah, and that was one of the things that you guys had discussed was that the majority of the leaders are just yes men, regular people, but there are a couple that are forceful personalities that will push for what they believe um, at any opportunity that they have. Yeah, and while Hubie Brown is trying to get the priesthood ban lifted, you've got Ezra Taft Benson who comes this close to having the president of the John Birch Society speak in general conference. And he also comes this close to having the picture of David O. McKay on the cover of the John Birch Society magazine. <laughs> oh, man. And those get found out about in kiboshed as well. So there's all this jockeying for power when you have a weak leader. It has happened a million times, I'm sure, in history. It will happen a million times more. But this is just one of those examples where it happens. And it's Warren and probably Warren's mom who are pushing, pushing, pushing to get things changed and do things their way now that Rulon has had a stroke. And part of that is got to keep everybody away from Rulon. All right. Because I'm not going to give you the opportunity to say that Rulon told you to do something that's different from what I want done. Yeah. And who knows what Rulon might have said. Yeah, well, it's it's the same sort of thing. Like, who knows who knows what President Monson was saying when he had dementia, going around the halls of the church headquarters. That's true. I guess only the people who are present know. Yeah, and then you get to a position where you have a church that tries to make it look like their failing leaders are stronger than they actually are, and then it starts looking like the old Soviet Russia that I grew up with. At what point does it become elder abuse? Well, that's a good question. 
the way that we treat these individuals as a culture, you know, in, in Mormonism or even in the FLDS, FLDS church, at what point is, is it elder abuse to, to take advantage of these individuals? You know, they, they have dementia or a stroke and they're incapable of actually running the church, but the way the faith is set up is that they, they are the mouthpiece until the day of their death. When they become incapable of fulfilling that role, like at what point does that become elder abuse? Right. And if you're the powerful personality who's close to the individual who's in power, who is failing in health, it is important for you to continue to get your agenda passed to portray the president as being healthy enough to at least tell you what to do. So there's that. Now, I'm through two pages of my 16 pages of notes. (laughs) We're going to have to pick this up. Yeah. So I think we've covered part one and part two pretty well. Part three, they start, part, part two ends when the, the church, um, the FLDS church starts buying land in, they kept, it was like grating on my ears, but they kept calling it El Dorado, Texas. Yeah. And I'm just like, it's a Spanish word. It should be El Dorado. Well, it's Texas. They pronounce things differently there. <laughs> yeah. Amarillo. And it's also one word. Did you notice there's no space between the L and the Dorado? <laughs> yeah, and that was at the end of uh, episode two, right? Yes, that was at the end of episode two that they start moving down there. And then episode three, um, it starts covering the the construction projects that they were working on and how they were starting to send out some red flags to the local residents of El Dorado. I'm just going to say it like that because that's how they say it, but it just it just hurts me. It hurts my ears. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the people that they interviewed was um, a pilot. And I don't know that he was, I don't think he was a commercial pilot. I think he, I think it was just recreational, if I'm not mistaken. It looked like a Piper or something, maybe a Navajo. (laughs) (laughs) You got that, did you? I, I, yeah, it was, it was good. So he's, he's making these flights and observing from an aerial view, the constructions that are going on. And the locals thought that it was like a hunting lodge for some corporation. By the way, if, if they're recalling it correctly in the documentary, that's what they were told. Yeah. It wasn't an assumption. They were told that all this property was being bought by Warren Jeffs for the uh, a hunting lodge. Well, and that's, that brings up one of the other similarities. When Warren takes over, it, there seems to be a consolidation of the businesses owned by members of the FLDS church. And at that time, uh, Warren starts taking ownership of these businesses and he is turning them into church owned and church operated businesses. It was very akin to some of the, some of the workings of the early church when Joseph Smith would bring in the entities, the, the general stores and all of these things and turn them into church owned and operated organizations. You seem to have a consolidation of power where the FLDS church was suddenly a very wealthy entity, owned multiple businesses. But not only that, they had, since they were practicing polygamy and having many children, they had this vast labor force and this vast cheap labor force. So they were using that to prop up these businesses and run them at a much cheaper cost than a lot of the competition. So when they made this claim that they were coming down as a corporation to create this hunting lodge, they did have a little wiggle room in actually saying that. 
they did own a number of different companies and they were very, very wealthy. So on one hand, they weren't telling a lie, but they weren't really telling the whole truth on on who was coming in and buying land. Right. And they've got tons of companies. They are swimming in it uh, as far as money goes. They have all this they have all this free labor with the young men. So they didn't get rid of them all. This has got to be one of the tensions that the, the leadership must have felt is we need to get rid of the young men because of the problems they cause with us marrying up all the young women. But on the other hand, they're pretty useful when it comes to being free labor for all these construction projects for major corporations where they have the edge because free labor. I mean, they can underbid anybody. If you don't have a labor cost, then your expenses are very cheap in the labor industry. Oh, by the way, when the, yeah, when he goes to Texas, he figures, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to Texas and that's where we're going to build this temple. Have you ever gotten to the pilot flying over and seeing the foundation of the temple? Yeah, I did mention the pilot flying over, but I didn't say what it was that they were building. Yeah, they see this foundation for this massive structure, which I immediately go temple, temple. But they're saying not a hunting lodge, not a hunting lodge. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was it was pretty clear that it was a massive structure and Mormons and any of the branches of the original um, Mormon faith, they're temple building people. And so that's, I mean, this should have been obvious to anybody that was familiar with the organization, what they were actually doing there. Right. And so as soon as, of course, I have 2020 hindsight now because I remember the raid of the temple, or excuse me, the raid of the compound when it happened, they get to this. And by CPS taking all the kids, away from the, the parents. Um, I remember that very well. So all of a sudden I'm making the connection in my own mind, which I hadn't realized before that this temple in Texas and this compound is Warren Jeff's deal. He's not just short Creek. He decided the heat's coming down in Utah. Things are starting to get hot, mainly because of this Mike Watkiss guy, who's the reporter who will not leave this alone and keeps bringing it up. And he finally gets a a hot lead on a police officer, a certified police officer. And when I say state certified, I mean, it's a police officer, but obviously one who works in Short Creek. Yes. Can we talk about that for a second? Let me put a pin in that. Yeah, we can jump back. I think that was back in episode two, maybe maybe the beginning of episode three. That was fascinating where there was clearly a conflict of interest with this police officer. Right. So you have Short Creek, you have Warren Jeff's in charge of Short Creek, but the police are not separate and independent from Warren Jeff's. They are appointed by him. They are members of the FLDS community. So you have Warren Jeff's literally in control of the police, in control of everything that goes on in this town, including the marriages. And so nothing happens in Short Creek without Warren Jeff's authorizing it, which means that Warren Jeffs can do whatever he wants in this community and get away with it. Which reminded me of Nauvoo. Exactly. Because the way I had learned about it as a, a TBM growing up is that Nauvoo is this wonderful place. It's this sanctuary. And here's the Mormons. They've been run out of New York. Then they got run out of Ohio. Then they got run out of Missouri. They finally land on this swampy piece of land on the banks of the Mississippi in Illinois, called Commerce. They make it into Nauvoo. They build it up. It's beautiful. They have a few years where it's everything's so great. And then Joseph Smith gets killed. 
1844. But Nauvoo is run by Joseph Smith. He's the mayor. He's, he's the, the president of the church. There's nobody in any position of authority in that town without him appointing them. And so everybody does what he wants them to do, up to and including destroying a printing press. The similarity there is huge. And it was something I think Brigham Young was trying to establish as well, where they're they're building a theocracy where it's a form of governance that's both spiritual and temporal, where they're in charge of every aspect of the lives of their citizens. That was the goal when they went to Utah. They wanted to get away from the United States and do their own thing how they wanted to do it. And this is what we see with that Warren is setting up as well. He's taking over this town. He's moving everybody there. He's operating directly, telling the police, the police officers what to do and how to investigate things. It's it's very, very similar to the way Nauvoo was run and the early days in Utah. Right. So on the one side, Nauvoo is this great place where now Mormons can finally have freedom for a brief period of time from the mobs because they have this incredibly powerful city charter that gives them all this power and the writ of habeas corpus. But on the other hand, the downside, <laughs> the downside is that the leaders can do whatever it is that they want because they own the police. They own the courts, at least in Nauvoo. And I'm not sure about the courts in, in Short Creek, but they certainly owned the police. And if you own the police, you don't have to worry too much about the courts because your case is never going to get to court if the police don't investigate it. Well, that, in, in that time, you, it, they showed the clips of the investigators going to the house of Warren, trying to find Warren, trying to talk to people and being ushered away by the police and by people that were in the house. Oh, right. There was there was definitely some influence on the way the whole city was run by Warren to protect the, the name of the church. Yes. And that's right after Mike Watkiss, the reporter, is talking to another deputy or another police officer in Short Creek and asking him about whether he's going to prosecute for uh, polygamy. It's polygamy is against the law. So are you going to be t prosecuting any of this? And he goes, well, no, because I believe in polygamy. And you're going, okay. It doesn't make a difference if you believe in polygamy. It's against the law. What is your freaking job? What did you raise your right <laughs> hand to the square and swear that you would do? Well, it's, it's picking and choosing which laws are more important than others to focus on. Yeah, apparently. So they have this scene. And then Mike Watkins goes to a house, Warren Jeff's house, I believe. Yeah, to yeah. talk to him. And one of Warren's sons was there that answered the door. Yeah, last name Jeffs. There's a lot of Jeffs in this town. There's a lot of Jessops. In this town, because Jessup was the name of the bishop, right? Yeah. And I was wondering if Ruby was his daughter, because her last name was Jessup, or maybe she married somebody. Could have been. But anyway, regardless of that, they they have this uh, this comparison, this contrast between the deputy who says, yeah, I'm not going to be prosecuting or investigating plural marriage because I believe it. And then here you've got the same reporter going to the doorstep and being actually very uh, polite, very courteous at the doorstep, just asking if he could talk to Warren Jeffs and the kid at the door saying, no, you can't. And he doesn't want to talk to you. And then boom, you know, the sheriffs are there because they're Johnny on the spot when somebody wants to talk to Warren Jeffs. And when Warren Jeffs gives him a phone call, it just makes you wonder. It's like, who made the phone call to come escort the reporters away? And what's going through your head? I mean, the, he's not a threat, not holding a weapon. Nobody's in danger. 
He's just asking questions, not harassing. It didn't seem like there was anything wrong, but you're calling the police to escort him away. Like it just seems right. like, I don't know. He wasn't being belligerent. He wasn't doing anything that warranted that sort of a response. No, he wasn't. And of course, we don't know everything that may or may not have been edited out either originally or later on. But of course, uh, bottom line, he's trespassing once he's yeah. been told he shouldn't be there. So we have that. But then because of Mike Watkiss, he uncovers a case against one of these certified police officers, I believe, in Short Creek, who is married to an underage girl and lights in the fire in the media that the media pays attention now and this guy gets arrested and prosecuted and Mike Watkins says he got a slap on the wrist but all of a sudden now it's public and now people are recognizing it and I think there was something sexy about the idea that this is a certified police officer who's being prosecuted for polygamy that probably gave it more cachet in the media than it might otherwise have had so now things are getting hot for Warren. Warren starts setting his eyes on Texas. And as I'm watching this, once again, this is where I jumped off saying I got 2020 hindsight because I know what happens. But still, I'm looking at Warren. I'm thinking, you know, considering that your whole deal is trafficking, sex trafficking, young girls, I think that you could probably do better than pick Texas to go to <laughs> if you want to do that, because they're not going to look very kindly on that in Texas. And I think he... He stopped too soon and should have kept going to Mexico or points further south if he wanted to do that. But no, he thinks Texas, it's West Texas. There's a lot of big open spaces in West Texas. He finds one in a little podunk town called El Dorado, even though it's outside of El Dorado or El Dorado. Anyway, we know the place, right? <laughs> and he goes down there. He buys up all this land. And then he starts ferrying people from his compound down there. And this becomes Zion. Yeah, they start referring to it as Zion, but they're not bringing everyone. They're picking and choosing very specific people that they want to bring down. And this was really sad too. At this point, they start separating families. They start, there were some interviews of, of mothers who woke up in the morning and their daughters were just gone. And they're looking around trying to find out what happened. And they had been stolen from their families and whisked away to Zion. Right. And some, and there was another story about where the kids were going to be taken away that morning. I think that was Alicia. This was a bit of a confusion to me. I finally think I got it straight with Alicia is the, the brunette with the short hair. And Alisa is the blonde who ends up coming forward to testify against Warren Jeffs. Ultimately in the trial. And the similarity in names is what was uh, was confusing me at first. So, but this was uh, Alicia, and she had kids. She had those two daughters, remember? And she finds out the morning that they're being taken from Short Creek to go down to Texas. And by the way, nobody knows where this is. This is a big secret too, from anybody who's not there. Mm -hmm. You don't know where they're going. They're just being whisked away. She talks about the agony that she had about being separated from her two kids and being taken away. And it was just uh, traumatizing to listen to her talk about this. And so the idea was Zion is the place where the more superior followers go, even though it, the more superior ended up being a lot of very young girls. There were obviously other people who went down as well, but lots of young girls and her two young daughters were among those who were taken down there. And apparently trained and raised and indoctrinated and brainwashed in such a way 
that they would be good plural wives. Warren wanted to have a more direct control of the grooming of these young young girls, and that was the motive for whisking them away from their families. And it, yeah, it's just sickening. Right. So now he's he's replicating church history again. Interestingly, whether intentionally or not, I can't say. But of course, there's this entire period in the 1830s in church history where there are two headquarters. There's the one in Kirtland, Ohio. And there's the one in Jackson County, Missouri, which is called Zion. And that's where the temple's going to be built, right? The temple, with a capital T and a capital T, the temple is going to be built there in Zion. And people are going down to Zion. And not everybody's going to Zion. People are staying in Kirtland. Joseph Smith spent most of his time in Kirtland. Kirtland was a more successful city at first for him. It was a, a, the economy was more booming than what was happening out there in, in Zion. And so a lot of the members moved out there and Joseph Smith focused his time there because it was, it was a lot more successful for him until, you know, the safety society incident. Oh yeah. Right. And that's when he moved back to Zion. Yeah. The anti-banking bank. Yeah. <laughs> that one. So, yeah, and then that that flew apart. And so early 1838, he ends up going to Zion and leaving Kirtland forever. But my recollection is, is that Kirtland was about a thousand miles from Zion. And that was the, the distance. So it was quite a ways away. But then they talked in this show about how Short Creek to El Dorado, Texas was a, a thousand miles. And I thought... Is that a coincidence or did he choose a thousand miles because he was consciously replicating church history? Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I, I didn't I didn't take note of that. I, I thought it was interesting. The woman who her husband had been traveling there and she didn't know where it was. And so she she uh, wrote down his mileage before he left and the mileage when he came back and, you know, cut it in half and drew a circle <laughs> of that radius. Right. And she says, well, there's three places it could be. And then all of a sudden she's talking about, oh, well, there's mud on the tires and it's not from there and it's not from there. And I'm going, who the freak are you, Sherlock Holmes? Come on. <laughs> I, I think you're embellishing the story just a little bit. When someone suspects foul play or when they're, they feel like they're being kept out of the loop, and that's, I think that's where this woman was coming from, she's doing what she can to find out what's going on. So Warren goes on the lam. He just sort of disappears. He's one of these poofers is what Rebecca called them, the people that they would wake up in the morning in Short <laughs> Creek. And now there's just people who are not there anymore. Poof, they kind of went away during the night as if it's a magic trick. And now Warren does this too, because he recognizes that things are getting pretty hot, that the authorities are after him. And that's certainly true. I don't think it took a whole lot of um, um, paranoia on his part to come to that conclusion. It was reality-based, but he poofs. And he goes off, and apparently he's driving across the, the country with some very close associates, including his younger brother, Seth. He's taking some of his, his favorite wives with him, too. Right. So, and they go to Disney World, apparently. They go to do all these things. And they go to some strip clubs. Oh, yeah, strip clubs. But he's got no shortage of funds to do this because he has his followers sending him $300,000, excuse me, $300,000 in cash a week to support his trip. Well, the guy that they interviewed for that said that it was sometimes multiple times a week that they would send those envelopes and envelopes of cash in a box. Right. And then Seth is the one who's transporting Seth being the younger brother, who's obviously very trusted by Warren. 
and he gets caught transporting the money, but Seth gets arrested. He gets a small sentence and then they're apparently back in action. So you've got, uh, they must've been back in action because Seth is actually driving the car ultimately that Warren gets stopped in and caught. Mm -hmm. Well, the the way the system's set up, if you have money, you can post bail and you can, you don't go to prison right away. Well, that's true. So it could have been something along those lines. And they weren't short on cash. (laughs) Not a bit, not a bit. They are living the high life, even while Warren is the one who has imposed upon all of his followers that they have to work hard for the privilege of working harder. For the privilege of sending him to Disneyland. Right. That fun is a four-letter word, but once again, we have this the situation where I have rules for thee, but not for me. The rules I'm giving you don't apply to me. Do you see any similarity with that in Mormonism? Not the, Not necessarily the strip clubs. <laughs> One of the things that I wrote down, and this was a quote of some of uh, of Warren's when he had first taken over, and it it harkens back to kind of the happiness letter sort of rhetoric, and what he said when he's when he's starting to implement these things that his followers were grumbling about or disagreeing with. He said, "Whatever the Lord commands is right, even if it seems against our traditions." Yes. So he's he's setting up this idea that that whatever he says is right, even if it goes against the commandments, even if it goes against the traditions. And that's the same sort of rhetoric used much more eloquently by Joseph Smith, by the way. The happiness letter is really well written. When Warren writes this, I don't know, it just seems like a like a really bad imitation of, of, of Joseph Smith here. Yeah. Not that I agree with what Joseph Smith said, but he was he was pretty eloquent by this time in his career when he wrote that letter. Yes. And I I got that same happiness letter vibe off of it, too. They actually have a recording of Warren Jeff saying that in a sermon or wherever it was he said it. But yes, it's very important to make it clear that what I tell you as the prophet is what you have to follow. It doesn't matter if it contradicts your political views. It doesn't matter if it contradicts your social views or your religious views. You do what the prophet says. And that's what Joseph Smith said. That's what Warren Jeff said. And it's also what Harold B. Lee said in General Conference. They can never lead you astray. (laughs) Nope. Not in a million, million years. By the way, they have this this little hotel they go to before they have the temple set up. And this is, I think, before the move to Texas. There is a little hotel that's just apparently across the border into Nevada. Because that's where they go to perform the marriages of these underage girls. Because... Nevada law is less severe on people doing that than Utah law is, was the explanation given in the show. They weren't getting marriage licenses, though. They couldn't outright go and get marriage licenses. And so it wasn't, they weren't officially married, but they were performing the religious ceremony of marriage. Right. It was a little hotel in the middle of nowhere in a place called Caliente, Nevada. I'm guessing it's hot there. (laughs) And it was the Hot Springs. There's the hot again. The Hot Springs Motel. And it was basically abandoned. And they would go down to a room and go into the room. And that's where the ceiling, the marriage was performed, which I'm assuming they didn't say. But I'm going to say I'm presuming that Warren Jeffs is the one who is conducting it. And I don't know if they have some kind of little altar in there. But I expect he's doing what we would consider to be a temple ceiling 
for eternal marriage. If it was done anything like what they did in the lodge in El Dorado, they they probably performed the ceremony and you know in the bedroom and then had some sort of consummation there at at the same time. Maybe because that's what was happening later on. But who who knows? I mean, he's he's clearly developing the theology and developing the rituals um, at this point, and you know, creating a pattern that he will use later on. Later on is just a couple years later after after these these first marriages that he's talking about. He's talking about something significant that happened with Alyssa, who was the the blonde gal who comes forward and testifies against him. Yeah, is that she's there? She is there to get married to her first cousin, I think it is, who she just hates. She hates his guts. I think it's Alan Steed, but she just hates his guts. And apparently he was also physically abusive. And she has been talking to anybody who will listen about how she doesn't want this. This is wrong. This is not God's will. I think she even talked to, um, I'm not sure if it was she or Rebecca who talked to Warren about it. But Warren just saying, nope, this is God's will. Are you challenging God's will? Saying, do you not believe that I'm a prophet? Do you not believe that I speak for God? Which are these thought-stopping cliches like, do you not sustain President Nelson as a prophet of God? And that's supposed to end all questions, right? If you sustain him, then you keep your questions to yourself and you keep sweet and you just pray and obey and pay, by the way. But the thing that Elisa or Alyssa was doing was that she's right there. She's got to get married. She's all dolled up in her 14-year-old person with a wedding gown, a veil, a tiara, right? Remember the tiara? A white tiara. Everything's white. And she's begging and pleading with her mom. And her mom is crying. And her mom is squeezing her hand. And then Alyssa says she feels the desperation from her mom, too. But she realizes, Alyssa realizes that her mom's salvation is on the line with this marriage as well as her own salvation. So you get the idea, if it's just her salvation, forget it. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do it. But then she realizes her mom's salvation is on the line. So she goes through with it. And that reminded me a lot of some stories and incidents in LDS church history with Joseph Smith. Anytime salvation comes at a significant personal abuse or affront to your privacy and safety, that should be a glaring red flag. I mean, we all know we were indoctrinated. We were part of these unhealthy systems. You just take it in stride because that's what you believe. These systems are so unhealthy. That episode, I think that was episode two. That that scene was what brought me to tears. And then I think right after that, they showed the the goat scene that I was talking about a minute ago, where it's you know just kind of analogous of of these these people trapped in these systems, but then they're taught that these systems are for their benefit and for their good, when in reality they're just harming them irreparably sometimes. Yes, and it was Alyssa. Alyssa did go to Warren, but. She goes to Warren after she's married and telling Warren how bad it is, how abusive it is, how much her husband hurts her, especially in the bedroom she talked about. And and Warren says to her, go submit yourself to your husband. Yeah. And that was the quote, the original quote, right, that you said was on the screen at the very beginning. Women, submit yourselves to your husbands. Ephesians, what's it, 522? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. 
<laughs> if you want to look it up, you can. I don't yeah, have that I'm pretty one memorized. Sure, I'm pretty sure it is. And so now we get to episode three, and we've got a newspaper in El Dorado called The Success, The El Dorado Success. And the editor, the reporter, the janitor is Randy Mankin. <laughs> and Randy, oh, by the way, there, there are three main people. I, uh, we talked about Mike Watkiss. There's also a private investigator with a cowboy hat named Sam Brower, who is makes it his life mission as well. He wants to figure this out. He wants to bring it down. He wants to free these people, and especially the women, from this life that they are being, well, forced to live, forced, coerced, religious coercion. Okay. And so, by the way, Rebecca, we got to talk about Rebecca. Rebecca finally... She just leaves. Remember, it's a Sunday. They've, they've got to the point now with Warren where they've got cameras everywhere and surveillance on everybody. She mentioned being on camera when she fled. And, and I didn't realize this, at least, you know, because I only kind of had a passing knowledge of, of all of the events. But I didn't know that they were surveilling the members of the church at the time. And that's just wild. It does seem, well... Uh, it is wild, except for the fact that they've got unlimited money to buy cameras and surveillance equipment. <laughs> Number two, people are starting to leave, and that is creating problems. And number three, uh, we want to monitor this so people aren't able to leave. And so it becomes more and more Stalinistic. As far as surveillance of everybody, we've got to keep them under control. If somebody slips away, we're losing control. We have to double down on the control and the surveillance. And the funny thing about Rebecca is that she knows that the cameras are there, but she also knows that Sunday is the day when the surveillance is going to be the least, by which I presume she means people aren't going to be watching the cameras as much because it's Sunday. They're going to go to church. So she takes that time. She just walks and she has to walk. She can't run because that'll draw attention to her. So she's out there in her pastel, pastel pioneer dress. And she walks to the gate. Remember, there's a gate. So there's a locked gate as well. So there's more than just surveillance, keeping these people in. And then she said she shimmied or shimmied up the gate in her pioneer dress, went over the top, and then shimmied down the other side. And then she just kept on walking. The line that she said that really stuck out to me, and this was right around this time, she's, she's talking about her abuse. She said that she didn't have the language to understand or describe her trauma. And she knew she was hurting. She knew it was wrong, but she didn't know why she didn't know. She, she didn't have words to explain or even tell us, you know, any sort of story around why it was happening or even what was happening to her. That really hit me hard. Um, language is really powerful. But if there's no discourse in the society, there's no discourse in the culture to teach these people about the potential harms in their relationships, it leaves these women powerless to defend themselves, to take care of themselves. It's, it's really damaging. And, and that, that really stuck out to me. Yes. So we've got this editor of the El Dorado or El Dorado Success newspaper, uh, and he is very interested in what's going on there. And he's trying to bring this to the public's awareness as well. 
And he's getting in touch with this pilot who's making these flights over the property and kind of surveilling it. Right. That's when things kind of hit the fan over in El Dorado a little bit. But remember, here's Warren. He's out there. He's having the time of his life. He's on the lam. But every now and then he'll pop up here. He'll pop up there. He's like the Scarlet Pimpernel. And he shows up. (laughs) He shows up all of a sudden at Short Creek. Remember, they're having this big meeting. It's probably Sunday. I don't know. But uh, they're having their big meeting. And here's Warren all of a sudden up there talking. And that's where he says, the Lord has given me the names of 21 men who are master deceivers. Yeah. And he names off all of these men who are in the audience. Everybody's there. Yeah. Including this brother wall that we had mentioned earlier. He was on that list. Yes, he was. And so was Warren's older brother, Leroy. I think that's how it was pronounced, Leroy, as opposed to Leroy. But anyway, his older brother was also on this list. And what he did was he took all the men who had any kind of social standing or power or influence. Or education. Or education. Very good. And uh, says, okay, you're all master deceivers. God has revealed it to me. Here's the list. And now you have to be out of here by nightfall or whenever it was. You got to pack your stuff, get out of here. But by the way, you're not taking your wives with you. You're not taking your kids with you. They're staying here. You guys get out of Dodge. And they did. They did. And so he takes the wives and reassigns them with the kids to different men. And by the way, this was one of the reasons, one of the questions I had when I'm watching the very first episode with uh, Wall, the convert. The engineer convert. He's sitting there talking to the camera. He's only got one wife with him. And that's the oldest one or the first one, Myrna. And so I'm looking and going, where is, where are his other two wives? What happened to them? Why aren't they on the camera? And then that question gets answered later on in episode three, because he's one of these 21 guys who asked to leave. Apparently Myrna ends up joining him, but the other two, the other two of his earlier wives, yep, they stay behind with the kids. And reassigned to other people, other men. It was a huge power move on Warren's part. It was like the Valentine, Valentine's Day Massacre. That was really a hard thing for a lot of these women. There was, the, there was that one woman in particular who she described. And she was in a polygamous marriage, but she, she did have affection for her husband. And she did have what apparently was a good relationship with this guy. And suddenly her church leaders are telling her that he was evil. He was vile. Take down all the pictures. You're not allowed to talk about him. And then they put her with this man who does treat her poorly. And so suddenly she goes from a healthier marriage to an unhealthier marriage. And it's supposed to be the will of God. And that was really hard for her to grapple with. Yeah, she was actually in love with Leroy. And that, I believe, was Alicia, the one with the short brunette hair in the in the present. Yeah. And she describes it as just, you know, feeling all Twitter pated and in love with him, even though he's got other wives. But she feels his real connection with him. She thought he was wonderful and charming. And um, and then he gets booted. He gets booted. She gets reassigned. And I am honestly thinking by this point, who the hell do you think you are, Warren Jeffs, doing this kind of crap with people's lives? I mean, obviously, the the child uh, brides and the sex and everything, that's got to be the worst part. But it's also the part I knew about. Yeah, I was familiar with that stuff, too, but not about this reassignment. 
Right. And that's why it probably hit me harder because I did not know about it. And just monkeying with people's lives, just willy nilly like that. And the One of the craziest things, they have to have some sort of concept of agency if they're if they're an offshoot of Mormonism, they've, they've got the same scriptures, the same ideas. This behavior goes against the whole idea of being able to choose. Not only just them reassigning the wives, but assigning women at all removes the woman's ability to have any input in her romantic relationships. That sounds like more akin to the plan of the devil as described in Mormonism, where you aren't allowed to make choices. You just have to obey. Right. So did you say that sounds like the LDS church? It sounds like the Lucifer's plan from the plan of salvation. You were saying it sounds like the LDS church then? A little bit. (laughs) That was me pretending like I wasn't listening when I actually was. (laughs) So this editor, by the way, down in Zion, right down in Texas, they have this place called the YFZ, the Yearning for Zion Ranch. I think that's what the whole place is called. Yeah, that's what they named Zion, Yearning for Zion Ranch. Yearning for Zion Ranch. Boy, I guess all the good names were taken. (laughs) At least all the good acronyms. Yeah. So this editor in El Dorado is trying to publish stories, getting word out about the underage marriages. Um, Months go by. And this editor is the only one writing about it. Then apparently the temple is found and they loop back into the pilot who flies over, sees the the temple foundation. And now that gets people excited about it. Then the documentary switches to the story of Alyssa. That's the, the blonde, Alyssa. And she falls in love with a guy who stops to help her with a flat tire by the roadside. And she ends up getting out. Oh, actually, she got excommunicated for adultery. She got excommunicated for adultery. So, I mean, this is the way to get out. Because she she fell in love with this guy, so she gets kicked out. Yeah. They don't have to shimmy up over the gates. They just committed just have to commit <laughs> adultery, right? And you're out. They'll throw you out. You don't have to escape. Well, I don't I don't think it was clear that she actually did have relationships. I just think that that they didn't like her behavior. No, and she is married to this other guy that she was forced to marry to. Then they loop Alyssa, who's out, with Rebecca, who's out. And then they decide they need to stop this because they've got little sisters who are still behind and they don't want their little sisters to have to go through the same stuff they had to go through. That was the motivating force. And this is part of the problem is that when you are a dictator, like Warren Jeffs was, you can push people and you can push people, but you can only push them so far. And ultimately, they'll start pushing back. Well, and we have the same thing happening with Joseph Smith, where he's pushing people, he's pushing people, and he takes one step too far with the printing press. And that led to his demise. And you, you have the exact same thing happening with, with Warren. He's, he's pushing, he's pushing, he's pushing, excommunicating the wrong people, and then it suddenly leads to his own downfall. Right. So now we've got the prosecutor who is in... Washington County. Is that a county down there in Utah where St. George is? Oh, I'm not. I'm not from Utah, so I have no idea. It could be. There's a Washington County where I'm from. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the, uh, there's a courthouse down there in St. George, which I think is a county courthouse. Anyway, the prosecutor has this idea that he's going to charge Warren Jeffs with being an accomplice 
to statutory rape because Warren Jeffs is the one who is making it happen. He's the one who's marrying them. So obviously he's uh, an accomplice. And so they they interviewed Jessup around this time when they're trying to find that information and they show that interview with Jessup and, and he had one of the, they're asking him directly, are you marrying child brides? And he has one of those famous moments where it's, I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we do that. Where he says to the camera, basically the same line that Gordon B. Hinckley did. Yeah. It's amazing how the memory can fail when in circumstances like that. Yeah. So Warren's still on the lam. They file the charges. They get a grand jury or whatever to bring in these charges. And they're just sort of hanging out there, probably with a warrant. While Warren is out on the lam, they end up finding him because they stop a car for a traffic violation. I think the rear license plate was partially obscured. The driver, Seth uh, Jeffs, and the and the the cop is saying, okay, license registration, and wait a second, Jeffs, uh, that rings a bell. We had a briefing about something like this. I can't remember. He was on the top 10 most wanted list. Oh, that's right. He was on the top 10 most wanted list. Yeah, that made the news where they're like, we've got Osama bin Laden. We've got, you know, they, they made a joke about all these people, and then it's just like one random white dude. <laughs> yes, Warren Jeffs, one goofy looking white dude. By the way, did you get the purr vibe off him? Oh, yeah. Or what? I, and this is this is so superficial, but I had this thought. I'm like, these these young women are getting braces to fix their their teeth and their smiles. Why didn't Warren get braces and fix his teeth and his smile? Because it's a lot of trouble, and he's a babe magnet as it is. He doesn't need straight teeth <laughs> to attract those women. He's got the power of the priesthood. I guess not. <laughs> power of the priesthood beats braces any day. I'll tell you. So yeah. So they finally arrest him on the warrant, I'm sure. And now they're going to take him to trial. And this is where Alyssa is the is the one. She is the one who has the guts to come forward to protect her little sisters who are still in. And she's got to testify against him. So brave, but it must have been so traumatizing for her too. I mean, the way she described it was really, really impactful. Yes, very impactful. And I just was so proud of her and that's probably not the right word so impressed by her first time i watched it i'm just thinking going to court and i've had to do this when i was a kid but going to court and testifying against someone who's there in the courtroom she talks about the eye contact and she refused to look away from warren jeffs when they made eye contact across the courtroom she said i'm going to watch him i'm going to look at him i'm going to stare at him he's going to break eye contact first and he did and she felt like okay you have no more power over me that was a really powerful moment. It was, it was almost like her taking back her own autonomy, her own personal authority. But it was contrasted with a really interesting scene that they did right. I think it was right before that, where she's talking about her life outside and she's talking, or no, I'm mixing up, I'm mixing up women. It, this was the, this was the blonde gal. So right before this, they have a scene with Alyssa and and it was really interesting. And I think it highlights something that a lot of people in this sphere can relate to. But she's talking about some of her hobbies and the things that she did while she was in the FLDS church and how, you know, she has this passion for sewing and all of these other these other hobbies that she does that she learned while she was there. And, and in my mind, I'm, you know, I'm watching these scenes. And I always ask myself, like, why include this? Why is the director taking the time to show this woman sewing and then contrasting it with them standing up to, you know, these, these unhealthy systems? And the, where my mind goes with it is no matter how far away they get from these unhealthy systems, 
they will always be impacted by them. So they were given to her because of her culture. And, and I think it was a very subtle way for the directors and the creative team behind this documentary to say, no matter how far away these women get from these systems, they will always be impacted by them. Very good. Alyssa coming forward and testifying was incredible. I thought it was brave of her, period. But then the second time I'm watching it, I'm seeing, wait a second. She's not just showing up in court to testify against this guy who has been so abusive to her and holds this position of prophet of God ever since she was a kid. I mean, think about that, too. Well, she described having multiple conversations, interviews with him in his office whenever she had questions or doubts or concerns. So they had some sort of personal relationship outside of all of this before the 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 trial. Right. And so you've got a guy who's the prophet of God and she is going to testify against him to put him away. And so, of course, they've got concerns about other people trying to kill her before she can testify. And they didn't talk about any kind of specific intelligence they had about that, but it's an obvious concern. So they end up driving her around St. George. In other words, all these different turns, all these different traffic turns. I think they had snipers probably who were uh, ready to, you know, just making sure everything's safe. And so this was an extremely tense and difficult situation that she voluntarily put herself in to bring Warren down. And so that's September of 2007. He does get convicted of both counts because of her testimony. And she comes. And those tapes. Oh, the tapes are actually later. Oh, were they? This is weird. Yeah, that's 2008. And this is one of the places where the chronology is strange because the tapes are in Texas. He's prosecuted in Utah. So what happens is that they get him for the two counts of accomplice of statutory rape. They get to the sentencing phase where they can bring in all the other crap they have that wasn't necessarily admissible or relevant in the original, uh, the criminal phase. Now they get into the sentencing phase and now they bring in all this crap and the judge goes, if the judge didn't know before who this guy was, he knows now or she knows now. And they just stacked those sentences to where it was over 100 years. So by the time my impression from the show is that by the time they found the tapes in Texas, that he was already serving more than a life sentence. So I don't know if they went after him separately in Texas based upon those tapes. The, um, the show didn't say. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't clear on that. So I, I just assumed that they were part of they were part of the same thing. Yeah, episode four is where the thing that happens in Texas is they get that fake phone call from Colorado. Yeah, and who knows who that was? Whether it was somebody who we saw on the show, and I'm I'm not talking about Alyssa or Rebecca or Alicia or anybody, but somebody calls in a fake tip, and they call in as if they're a kid who's inside the compound. And say, hey, I'm being held here against my will and there's sex going on and pregnancies and underage marriage and saying all the words that are going to get law enforcement there and also give them probable cause to go in with a warrant into the onto this private property in El Dorado, Texas, that's owned by the FLDS. So they have the warrant. They go there. They get there. And mainly it's a CPS thing. Child Protective Services in Texas, where they're going to take the kids because they want to do a welfare check on the kids. And this ends up becoming an absolute fiasco because there are 416 children. They had no idea how many kids there were there. 
And each one of those kids in a, um, a guardianship proceeding has to be assigned a lawyer at public expense. And this is one of the huge, huge problems. And I remember the media thing, and they're talking about the media and how Warren Jeffs manipulated the media by using the mothers of these kids, the plural wives, to talk on the shows, different shows, on news shows, Larry King, um, all sorts of different, Good Morning America, about how awful it was, how they missed their children, their children are in danger, they want their children back, and how they have a wonderful life and they're just so happy in their life and they just want these children back and the government is bad for taking them away. And that seemed to have been a univocal theme that the news was spouting at the time, which was very frustrating to the people who actually knew what the heck was going on inside. Yeah, who had any sort of prior information about the FLDS church and their practices. But it, yeah, it's it's fascinating how how a good PR campaign can alter the conversation around a subject. Right. And here he is using the women in order. I mean, the women that he is abusing by having them involved in this practice and other ways as well. And using them in order to try and get those kids back and put the pressure on the government to get the kids back, which ultimately succeeds. Apparently, only about four weeks later, the Texas Supreme Court down there in Austin says, no, give the kids back. So they do. But while they are there, while CPS is there at the temple, the first time getting these kids out, they're starting looking around. They see some journals that are written by the kids. And these journals, which are written by underage girls, are talking about being pregnant. Yeah, and miscarriages and all sorts of things. That's where they get the actual dope, the actual intelligence. It's not a hoax, right? The hoax was a hoax, but the police believed it to be true, and therefore it gave them probable cause to go there, CPS being an arm of the government too. So they go there, they look through these journals, and all of a sudden, holy crap, are you kidding me? We have got enough here for a warrant to search any place we want on this premises. And so now they go to the, the search of the temple, right? I have to tell you, this part I thought was overly dramatized. It was pretty dramatized. Because now they're talking about Rebecca and Alyssa and how they are, well, Rebecca's certain that there's going to be a treasure to trove of records and recordings somewhere on that property. And that's probably because of her experience. And I mean, it's kind of a Mormon thing, isn't it? You got to keep those minutes and those records of every meeting. <laughs> yes. So you can find out later on, 200 years later, what was really going on in Joseph Smith's day and not just the correlated <laughs> whitewashed version. Exactly. So they get flown down there to Texas, apparently to help with the search because they're going to be the ones with the inside information and be able to figure out where it is that they should search. And then the, the denouement of that is that the cops go into the temple. By the way, you know, there's guys there. FLDS guys who are not happy about it. So it seemed a bit tense, but there was nothing that happened. They go into the temple. They talked about the guy praying for the destruction of all the cops. Like he's like knelt down and started praying and weeping that God would kill them all. Yeah. It's like, you guys ever get tired of your prayers not being answered? <laughs> it's like Loki to Thor in the first Avengers movie. Are you ever not going to fall for that? <laughs> um but yeah so they go in there they go downstairs into the basement and they find a huge vault and the rec recordings are behind the vault so in other words the reason i think that the story about these two sisters going down there to help them find this is overly dramatized is that they find the stuff in the very first place that anybody would look 
You go to the temple, you go downstairs. Oh, look, there's a big vault. I wonder if they have anything that they think is important that they want to keep secret in this vault. So they finally open the vault and then they find it, including the audio recordings. Did you want to talk about the audio recordings? They were pretty chilling and I had heard them before. This whole thing went down while I was on my mission. I served my mission from 2006 to 2008 and it even made its way down there to Chile. I had people talking to me about it and bringing it up there. I couldn't research it at the time, but I did when I got home. I heard these recordings a long while ago and they were just chilling. They're as tactful as they can be with how they portray it. It's audio of the wedding ceremony leading up to consummation and then audio of after the consummation. And it is, it is hard to listen to. <laughs> if you didn't hate Warren before you heard that, it's hard to listen to that and, and not hate him for what he did. Okay, wait a second. Something just occurred to me because I was remembering the story that Mike Watkiss tells about that, those tapes being played, and it was in the context of a jury trial. Yes. So there was a jury trial that involved the tapes. So they did prosecute him for it because he said that there were 10 women on that jury. And when they played those tapes, Warren Jeffs was just lucky that there were a bunch of Texas Rangers in the courtroom. Otherwise, those 10 women would have jumped over the bar and killed Warren Jeffs with their bare hands. Well, one of the one of the crazy things about the whole scenario. So Rebecca is there in the court. I don't know that she's there present when the tapes are being played. She hears this audio and she recognizes the voices of some of the sister wives. So she knows people that were in the room watching the whole thing happen. Obviously, these women are also being subjugated and harmed by this this institution but she's a, she's asks herself and she's wondering on on the documentary like how could they be part of this and and perpetuate these unhealthy systems it was chilling for her to hear people that she knew witness that and i, I don't know that that whole audio was it was really hard to listen to it's on the fourth floor of the temple where we know the most holy stuff happens it's on a bed that was specially made to look like an altar you saw that, right? Yep. It was a bed made to look like an altar with plastic sheets. And that was given by Revelation too. Those aren't hard to come by. We've used them for our kids when they were potty training. Yeah, because you need God to tell you you got to have plastic sheets if you're going to be using an altar for those purposes. It was terrible because they actually had him, I think. They had his voice uh, reading the revelation about how the altar should be made. The thing that was the most upsetting to me about this audio was he is he is teaching these little girls and trying to tell them that it's going to hurt, but this is what God wants. And it was just so, so unhealthy. And it was it was really hard to listen to. I mean, I've got little girls. And they're they're little now. And it just I, I for one, I can't ever imagine thinking of them as property to be exchanged like that. That's just like blows my mind that someone could look at their own child like that. But then on the other hand, like to know that somebody else's little girl was being treated like this, it just like it hurts. It really hurts to listen to. I was really emotional when I was listening to this. This was episode four. Yeah. And for every little girl who was being abused, there was a parent or at least two parents who were consenting to it. It's tough. I mean, on one hand, we can blame them for giving consent, but on the other hand, like they're victims of these unhealthy systems too. And so it's, it's I mean, it's just self-perpetuating the harm 
from one generation to the next. It was Rebecca who said that one of the ironies was that the women were the ones who were subjugated by Warren Jeffs, but in the end, it was the women who came forward and put him away. Yes. Yeah. I think she took, took pride in, in the fact that she was able to affect so much good change in the world with, with this whole, with how it played out. Yes. And coupled with the frustration that there are so many who are still in, who are not coming out. So at the end, it was telling what year these people that had been interviewed for the whole process, like what year they went out, they left the FLDS church. And each one of them talked about family members, you know, little brothers and sisters, parents, and even children in some instances that are still part of the organization. And it was, yeah, you could see that they were worried for their friends and family. There were a number of things that happened, uh, within me emotionally the first and the second time. So if I can talk about those, the first time I watched it at the end, I'm watching it very attentively. I'm not taking any notes my face is like six inches away from the computer screen. And it's that gripping. And at the end, I am just overwhelmed by Warren Jeffs and the harm and damage and trauma he has caused. And I find myself yelling at the screen, who the hell do you think you are? to do all of this. And I had this very strange experience because I start thinking this all happens in very short order, but then I start thinking, you know, do you think you're a prophet? Do you really believe this? Being substituted with the thought, it doesn't make any difference if you really believe this. I don't care if you really believe you're a prophet. Or if you're fraud, because the harm you're doing is the same regardless. And actually, even if you are a prophet, the harm you're doing is the same regardless. So the last thing that matters is whether you are sincere in doing this. It's the harm that matters. Their beliefs do not trump the real harm that they do to their followers. Well put. And then I just had a friend mention to me about their grandmother referring to Mormonism as a cult. And that's before I started watching the show. And I immediately find myself going back to my old knee-jerk reaction of, well, no, Mormonism is, isn't really a cult. Now, the FLDS, that's a cult. <laughs> right? Mormonism isn't a cult. These guys are cults. But then as I'm watching it, all this stuff is happening inside of me, and I'm trying to give it voice now and articulate it. And all of a sudden, I'm understanding that the FLDS and the LDS are not two different kinds of things. They are the same kind of thing. They are different degrees of the same kind of thing, but they're on the same spectrum. So it comes to me, they are not different in kind. They are just different in degree. And Mormonism can accurately be called a cult, just the same way I was calling FLDS a cult, as long as I realize that it is not as far toward that end as the FLDS. But at this time, it's not the difference that I'm realizing, it's the similarities. And, I'm, and of course, I'm not trying to say the, F, the FLDS is, um, does equal damage with the LDS church, but I started thinking about all the things that the leaders of the church do without apparently any thought to how it impacts the lives of the members from uh, getting 
married young, having children as quickly as possible. Women don't pursue careers. Your best career is to be a homemaker and a wife and a mother and to support your husband in what he does, especially in his church callings. And then once you have kids and you're done and they're grown, then you retire and then you're supposed to go on couples missions. Instead of actually enjoying your retirement, spending time with your grandkids, you're supposed to go on couples missions. And if you've managed to amass any degree, oh, by the way, there's a certain thing called tithing as well. I don't know if you've heard of it, that Mormonism, okay. I'm so familiar with the tithing. subject. <laughs> there's this whole tithing <laughs> thing. And then if you've managed, in spite of the tithing, uh, to amass resources, then there is a push put on you to donate those to the church after you die. And not to mention the mission. So it goes from general and this happens to everybody to my own personal mission. And I'm thinking, you know, I gave two years of my life when I was 19, 20 and 21 to this church. And that is a huge manipulation of people. There's a huge amount of pressure put on young men to go on missions. As you know, at the time, President Kimball was saying, every worthy young man should serve a mission. And if he's not worthy, he needs to make himself worthy. So there's no exceptions to that. And I will tell you also that as I get closer to the end of my life, those two years that I gave to the church seem more and more of a sacrifice to me and more important to me. And I'm just thinking, you know, you did this, but then there's the same analysis that I have to apply if I'm going to be intellectually honest to the LDS church, which is it doesn't make any difference if Warren Jeffs thinks he's a prophet. The damage he does is the same. Well, it doesn't make any difference if Spencer Kimball or today Russell Nelson thinks he's a prophet. The damage they do is the same. And so here I'm thinking about this and I'm, I'm looking at Warren Jeff's picture on the screen and I'm saying, who the hell do you think you are? And all of a sudden I find myself imagining President Nelson's face and I'm saying the same thing to President Nelson. Who the hell do you think you are to monkey with people's lives the way that you do and you don't care at all about how it impacts them? And then I thought, well, when I'm on a mission, 79 to 81, even while I'm on a mission, unbeknownst to me, Boyd K. Packer is addressing the CES teachers, all the teachers of the church, all the professors at BYU, and telling them there's negative stuff about the church, and you need to keep that from your students. You need to not tell them about that. You need to not publish on it, because all you do and all you're supposed to do is say the faith-promoting aspects of the church, you leave the negative stuff out, because that might cause somebody to have doubts about the church if you tell them the, the truth that's negative. That's happening while I'm on my mission. And I'm just thinking, you know, uh, this isn't something where they have clean hands. A person's opinion about how dirty those hands are may differ, but I cannot see a reasonable person saying, okay, their hands are completely clean. And then I come to President Nelson. And I think President Nelson and... He makes up stories. 
He embellishes stories in order to make himself sound prophetic. Yeah, in order to sound like his relationship. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm I'm running away here with a rant. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just I was just saying that it's, it's self-aggrandizing the, the way it, telling stories with the intent to make oneself look better. Yes, and in this case, to look prophetic. In other words, I got this connection with God because of a lady wearing a hat at a state conference, or the incident at Mozambique, or the you know the the nightmare, the flight of death in the Navajo. The Navajo, that was the inside joke. These things happened, but the way they actually happened was very pedestrian and non-miraculous. And when he gets done with it, it's the biggest miracle in the world. And he is the hero of the story. He's the centerpiece of every story. And he's doing that today in order to get people to believe him, to trust him, to do what he says. And President Nelson, with all due respect, who the hell do you think you are? The way I <laughs> relate things to the world is through movies and and uh, literature and stuff. And and as I was watching this documentary, I had this distinct experience that was similar to to going to a movie. Have you ever been to a movie and you're sitting through it and and you think to yourself, "I've seen this exact same story before," hmm. where it's a remake, but they're not admitting that it's a remake. Oh, you mean like that Star Wars thing? <laughs> when they remade when Disney remade the first Star Wars movie I was I was more referring to like um the Seven Samurai Akira Kurosawa and then getting in the Magnificent 7 getting remade to like the Magnificent 7 Mr. We Deal in Lead <laughs> and then getting remade to The Three Amigos and then getting remade to A Bug's Life all of these like these stories are exactly the same beat for beat exact same plot points. That was the experience that I had while I'm watching this. I'm I'm looking at it and I'm like everything is so familiar but only slightly different. Like I have seen this story before. That was that was my impression as I'm going into this documentary. And and I feel like that's kind of what you're expressing here with your frustrations with the LDS branch of the Mormon Church. I think so, and I think that's one of the things that makes this documentary so explosive to the LDS Church is that it shows a bunch of people who are living the Mormonism that Joseph Smith restored and the where it goes to. I'm not saying Joseph Smith did everything that Warren Jeffs did or vice versa, but I'm saying, yeah, it looks a lot the same. And so it gives us the ability, gave me the ability to be very incensed at Warren Jeffs for how he was treating these people. But then I have to shift it to the people who are doing the similar thing in the LDS church because I can't just be mad at him and say, oh, what he does is bad. What the LDS church does is fine because that's not being honest with myself. So I all of a sudden I find my anger being shifted from him to the leaders of the LDS church. Can I tell you one other thing? Okay. So at the end, when uh, it's Alicia, short brunette, short brown hair, the hair is short, and uh, she finally leaves and apparently she leaves when she finds out about Warren Jeffs had been doing and it's all public. It's in the newspaper. And so she leaves and she's got a U-Haul trailer and she's going down the interstate and the doors of the U-Haul trailer open up and all of her pastel prairie dresses are flying out and all these books with Warren's teachings are flying out and they're getting run over by semis. Her whole life is in this U-Haul getting dumped out into the street. 
Yes. And that was made into a very nice analogy about how it's being left all behind. She's not taking it with her, although we know she is psychologically. She can't help it. But it's a wonderful image, and she keeps driving on, and now she gets to start anew. And I knew that was coming because I'd seen it the week before. And I'm re-watching it just this past week in order to get ready for this interview. And I'm watching this and, you know, I know it's coming and it's a nice analogy, but I wasn't that particularly moved by it the first time. And I'm watching it. And all of a sudden I find myself becoming emotional again. The second time there were two places where I got emotional. One was where Alyssa is testifying against Warren Jeffs. And she comes out afterward to do the press conference. And I'm just so overwhelmed by what she did and the bravery it took in everything. So, but this other one at the end, and I'm going, why am I getting so emotional? I'm, I'm like almost crying without the almost. And because it's impacting me so much. And We're I, men. We can cry. No, real men don't cry. You know, it takes a... That's it, a lie. It takes a big man to cry, but it takes a bigger man to point at that man and laugh. <laughs> That's toxic masculinity. <laughs> but, but no, I'm getting emotional. And so... Uh, my friend is there, and this is Wendy, and she's never been a Mormon, okay? But she's watched this whole thing. She's trying to understand it. And she's the one who said her grandmother used to call Mormonism a cult, who I was responding to. No, Mormonism isn't a cult. These guys are cults, not the Mormons. <laughs> and I had, I had said to her, I said, I don't know why I'm getting emotional now. Because I recognize I'm getting emotional. It's obviously coming from somewhere. Something's happening inside, but I'm not self-aware enough to be able to figure out what it is. So I just say to her, I'm getting emotional. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. And she says to me without missing a beat, and she's not being sarcastic, and she's not being cynical, and she's not being judgmental. She's just being totally sincere. And she, what she said was, well, maybe it's because you found out you gave most of your life to a lie. That could do a number on you. Uh, that feels like an understatement. <laughs> yes, I was shocked. It, it sounds it sound like something I would say. And that's why I laughed. So I laughed so hard because it was like the scalpel just getting right to the heart of things. Maybe it's because you found out you gave most of your life to a lie. That could do a number on you. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. It can do a number on you. It has done a number on me. And I am nowhere near plumbing the depths of the number it has done on me. And I may never be. I don't expect to be. For me, it will probably never be over. Yeah. Because just when I think it's over, something happens like this that tells me, hey, it's not all over. There's something else I'll be podcasting on, hopefully in the next few weeks, where I think that Mormonism has lost its ability to disappoint me. And then something happens and I go, oh, you've got to be kidding. That too, <laughs> you're taking that away from me as well. And I'm going to call the episode Disappointing Mormonism. But it, there's a specific story that I'm going to build it around. I won't talk about it here, except, except generally just to mention this idea that I don't think Mormonism will ever lose its capacity to disappoint me because it hasn't yet. On one hand, it's as important to me as it always has been, just in a different way. Where it was a key part of my life when I was a believer, and it was very important to me for, you know, specific reasons. But now it's it's still a key part of who I am. 
and I'm trying to understand what that relationship is now. So I've decided that my goal is that as long as Mormonism is going to continue disappointing me for the rest of my life, I may as well spend the rest of my life disappointing Mormonism. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So at least it's a two-way street. It may even be a chiasmus. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure we can work a chiasmus in there. That means it's true. I think anything with a, a chiasmus in it is, is uh, direct from God. By definition. Well, that was all I had to say. Do you have anything else you want to add about this wonderful documentary? That's all I've got. Fantastic. As always, it's a pleasure to bring you on. I don't have much more to say on this one, I guess, other than the fact that this is this was a really emotional experience. If you haven't watched it, please go watch this documentary. You'll be doing yourself a favor. And if you're a TBM who happens to be watching this documentary, Keep Sweet, all I can say is keep repeating to yourself. Warren Jeffs is not Joseph Smith. Warren Jeffs is not Joseph Smith. Warren Jeffs is not Joseph Smith. And you'll be fine. Well, that's that's why I, I started this out with this question, because they say they describe the FLDS church as a far offshoot of Mormonism. And the whole time I'm watching, just as you're highlighting here, it's really not. It's not a far offshoot. It is practicing some of the original doctrines and teachings and pushing them out to extreme uh, numbers. Yeah, it's the LDS church that is the far offshoot. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time and thanks for reaching out um, with interest on discussing this one. I know we did have some fans, some listeners that expressed the desire for us to chat about this. And so thanks for coming back on and and uh, and sharing your insights with, with me and the community. It's a command performance. <laughs> You're welcome. I had a great time, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I hope you have a wonderful day and a great 4th of July weekend. I will. I put that in there, especially for our listeners in jolly old England. <laughs> Nemo, are you listening? <laughs> I'll be celebrating the 4th of July and thinking of you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this, this documentary review that Radio Free Mormon and I did last week. This was a, a wonderful chat that I had with RFM and I am appreciative that he reached out to me and wanted to join forces again to record this review of Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. I appreciate the time he, ha he gave me for this and, and for thinking of me to do this review. I know that there were some listeners out there who had actually requested this specifically, requested that Radio Free Mormon and myself did this review of Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. I had said nearly a month ago that I was going to do a one-year podcasting anniversary episode. It is recorded. It is ready to go. That will be my next release. I had to push it back because of um, some of the other things that I was working on, specifically these the interviews with Brian Harris from Church Headquarters. I felt like those ones were a little bit more important than my vainglorious attempt at talking about myself and, and podcasting for a year. So that one will be coming out next. And then the following week, I'll have the next episode in No Man Knows My History, where we'll have Julia from Analyzing Mormonism back on the show. We will discuss chapters 15 through 21 of No Man Knows My History. As always, wherever you find yourself out there, I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>